exactly what is a life coach and what is the difference between a life coach and a regular licensed therapist such as an MFT or LCSW. Are there advantages to seeing one over the other? Today, we talk to Saima Jamshade, a life coach out of San Francisco, California. We discuss how the healing properties of talk therapy are essentially the same, regardless of one's training, background, or type of license. We talk about the alchemical process of the crucible, in which both client and healer are cooked and thus mutually transformed. And in the spirit of transformation, you, the listener, will get to jump in as Saima and I enter the crucible together to perform what she calls parts work around my problematic relationship with food. Lastly, we will reveal Saima's wild plans to bring the world of life coaching to places as far away as Pakistan. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. What's a life coach? Oh my God, it's so many things. To me, being a life coach means partnering with someone in order to help them through something they're experiencing in their lives. Because as a therapist, I mean, I do that too, but it's much more formulaic. They come in, they sit down for 55 minutes a week, and I've got all this clinical training about confidentiality and self-harm and don't sleep with your patients. That's illegal. You'll go to jail. So we have that too as coaches. Yeah. So there's an international coaching federation through which you receive a certification. Okay. So most coaching certifications work something like this where they have to go to a coaching school that's been certified as part of accredited school that's with the ICF. So that's usually a year-long program, which Mm -hmm. is what I did. You have certain number of hours that you have to show that you've coached people and you can then get their degrees of competency that you'd get as an associate's ACC that's called an associate certificate in coaching there's PCC which is more professional and then there's master so as you rack up the hours and the years and the training I see and to maintain that you have to keep studying it has to be something that gets renewed every three years mm-hmm. and there are ethics mm-hmm. the same as what you guys have Okay. Very close to that. So like if someone is going to say harm themselves and you have reason to believe they're going to do that, you can phone the police, you can phone the closest relative, you can you can do all that stuff. We can do all that stuff okay. as well. Okay, great. I do think the one difference in that is that my organization is tied to the actual government of California. Is yours? Or is it just sort of an independent thing? I think it's an independent thing. Yeah, okay. One of the things I like about coaches is that they don't feel as bound to things as therapists do. Therapists are often very careful because we're constantly worrying about losing our licenses. The the state of California, you know, breathing down your neck, it's it's a whole nother level. Like there's things that I can do that actually can get me theoretically put in jail. I'm sure there's a there's kind of a dark side to the fact that, you know, a coach can get they can get too liberal with things, but they're so free. Like they're so able to do their thing. Well, yes and no, okay. because they have a ethical obligation to do what's right by the client. We are trained to not cause any harm and any additional harm or right. to approach our clients in a way that's not psychologically safe. We have to develop the trust, build okay. the intimacy for us to even be in a place to make suggestions, mm-hmm. to help them 
relax and mm -hmm. put their guards down, mm -hmm. be less defensive, you know, mm -hmm. be able mm -hmm. to work in various modalities to help with the structures okay. that they're dealing with. So one thing I want to mention is the idea of the crucible. So the crucible is an alchemical philosophy things cook. Like the alchemists would try to create the philosopher's stone, which was a thing that would create gold. And so they would add this and they'd add that and they were constantly searching for how to turn lead into gold. And so the crucible was the literal physical beaker that you poured whatever in. But what they were really doing, what Carl Jung kind of discerned, that was actually a projection of a psychic process. There's no literal way to do that, but on a psychological level, that is what happens. Like mm. when you put a therapist and a, or a coach or whomever in a room together, there's an alchemical transference that happens where both people are transformed. Both substances are transformed. I think what a lot of therapists who get really snooty about, oh, coaches, they, what they forget is that we're all doing the same thing. You're mm -hmm. taking two people, you're putting them in a crucible, and you're turning on the heat. That's and, right. And you're making stuff happen. Yeah. And that can be a priest, that can be a friend, that can be anything. The difference is, is that when you're a coach or a therapist, it's formalized. There's clear roles. Okay. And so I guess what I want to say is, is that in the very beginning of therapy, people started to become therapists in the early 20th century. You would just declare yourself a therapist and put a sign out on your door. My old therapist, Seymour, he was 97 when he passed. He um, was grandfathered in because in his day, you simply declared yourself a therapist. Boof, there you were. And then the state of California stepped in and I guess the 70s, I'm not really sure when, in his words, fucked it all up. <laughs> and I feel like therapists were once at the frontier of psychology. And in a way, I think that coaches are now too, because you guys don't have the government breathing down your neck which i think is ultimately probably yeah. a, a comfortable place to be even like barbers used to you know the barber pole right the you know why it's red and white mm -mm. well this is what i've heard i really should have checked this out but i'm gonna go for it so these they would do small surgeries like pull teeth and i don't know remove warts who knows what they would even do chiropractic and their rags would be full of blood and so they would wind them around the pole outside their office to, oh to dry them off because there was like no germ theory back then. It was really gross. You know, and dentists also were mm -hmm. not, it was just like, I'm a dentist, poof. I'm a doctor, poof. I'm a whatever, poof. There's a lot to be said about good and bad of the government coming in and saying this is mm. regulating things and all that. The process of becoming a therapist is ridiculously laborious. You have to read a lot of crap and eat a lot of shit, be a slave for 3,000 hours working for a minimum wage or zero, or sometimes paying the places that you work for the privilege of being part of their clinic right. so you can get your hours. It's ridiculous. And a coach, somebody can feel inspired in, what is it, a year or two? A year. A, a, year. a year. Just step onto the scene. You know, no matter who you are, where you are, it's not as expensive. And I think a lot of therapists think that because they've been through this trial by fire that they're somehow better. Like mm -hmm. I went to school and I took these exams and da, 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 da. and it's like, well, fuck you. You know, like doesn't that doesn't mean you're better at it. It means you may know more about the law around suicidality. You may you may have done more research in some certain areas. That just because I put you in the crucible instead of a life coach to the crucible, that you're going to do a better job because you have these letters after your name. Right. It's silly. I did want to comment on what you were saying. Therapists could do and the coaches can't, and mm -hmm. a big big part of that which is why you had to go to school and spend lots of money mm -hmm. and have 3,000 hours mm -hmm, being mm -hmm. paid like shit is because coaches cannot diagnose and treat mental illness. That's true. We are not allowed to do that. In fact, in our coaching, we are suspicious or we detect that there might be trauma with a capital T mm -hmm. and that's blocking the client from moving forward. And you, you're able to tell that in a few sessions. Mm -hmm. We are to advise them to see a therapist. Okay. 
Yeah. And a therapist who may be specializing in their specific needs. Sure. You know, it sure. might be marriage counseling or right. somatic therapy yeah. or some yeah. different other modality. There's tiers in my profession as well. So at the top of the food chain are psychiatrists. Those are, uh, what does this mean? And Simon made a funny, funny motion. She was looks like she was screwing something into her head. Oh my god! I don't know what I really think of psychiatrists. My humble opinion is they try to fix something like depression or somebody who's unhappy who, mm -hmm. with mood altering substances. Well, yes, they are essentially pill dispensers in some ways. Uh, a good psychiatrist, though, is indispensable. So a psychiatrist, just so you all know, it's a it's basically a psychologist with an MD right? They yes. went to medical school. Yeah, they had a residency in yeah. psychiatry. They even may have gotten some kind of specialty. They might wow. even be intelligent. For instance, if I have somebody in my practice who's bipolar, and yes. they're having manic episodes, mm -hmm. and they're off the rails, spending tons of money and sleeping with a bunch of people and just not sleeping for weeks at a time, they need to be medicated. I'll say like, listen, I can't see you unless you go see a psychiatrist and get this worked right. out. And a good psychiatrist is truly indispensable. A bad psychiatrist is a dangerous thing. Um, some some psychiatrists just dispense medications. Some just do talk therapy. I know a psychiatrist, Dr. John Beebe in San Francisco, he does not dispense medications anymore. He stopped doing that. My father is the same way. When he was alive, he was a psychiatrist. He did not dispense medications. Mm -hmm. John Beebe also said the lesser the license, the better the therapist, which I really appreciated. But at any rate, that was kind of a mouthful. So you're a coach. <laughs> So I know you've asked me this before and you were like, what are coaches? I don't understand. I think most people have a hard time distinguishing where it all started because they usually know coaching from sports coaching, which okay. is possibly how it began. That was more building skills, having accountability, mm -hmm. having some kind of support. So that was more horizontal, problem solving, you know, okay. winning. Sure. Those were some of the goals that they worked with. Okay. But since then, things have changed dramatically in the field of coaching itself. The area that I was coached in, the type of coaching that I learned is called integral. That can be considered like a structural coaching. And that is more about finding new openings for the client. So as an integral coach, our job would be assess and figure out how is this person looking at the world. Can you give me an example? Yeah. When we do intakes and that type of coaching, it's mm -hmm. like you're looking at a person from all the different angles. You're not coaching to the problem like the first generation coaches were. You're coaching to the person that they are. So you're looking at them as in what story do they have about themselves? How are they relating to others? How are they relating to the world around them, their physical world, so on and so forth. So for instance, if I had a client who mm. came to me who was a homemaker and she didn't think that she had anything to contribute to, she didn't have a sense of meaning and purpose, mm -hmm. And the way she was looking at herself was just in that realm that I am a homemaker. She couldn't see any possibilities for herself. Uh -huh. The people around her, the people who were in part of her family or people she dealt with were people that she was supposed to take care of. That's how she related to others. Mm -hmm. And then her environment was all about you know, her garden, her kitchen, her home, the way she organized herself. She wanted a new way of looking at herself because she couldn't allow herself to do something that she considered frivolous, which would have meant maybe art or jewelry making or ballet dancing, mm -hmm. anything. So that was her way of being. That's what I had to 
assess as a coach. And then there were all these meta narratives that we were looking at as, you know, what she considers to be a value. Am I a value if I'm not monetizing on my hours? If I am not being of value a certain way, Mm -hmm. just the way our culture looks at the way we're valued. And then there were other things around the way she was raised and what was considered to be worthy and not worthy of pursuing. So in a way, so there's the structure of interpretation, there's a way of what is around her, how did she grow up? What kind of beliefs did she have? Did she come from a family that was very strict? Right. They weren't allowed to laugh and play I and see. everything had to serve a purpose. Sounds a lot like therapy to me, folks, but go on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was to really help her see herself in a different way. What did she find? What story? What was her new story? Her new story was that of a stage actress. Oh, really? Yes. That's like awesome. A, like a heroine of a play and everybody else were supporting actors and actresses. And did she actually start acting? Um, she was supposed to. She was going <laughs> to take some class. The, that was the assignment? Okay, <laughs> but that's really cool. No, that was just something she wanted to do, right? So, so it neat. was really changing the way she looks at the world. But when she arrived, there had been an eruption right. in her life, right? And yeah. that's where the opening was. Uh, there's this book uh, called Trickster Makes This World. It's about the trickster archetype. Yes. I find that a lot of people come to me in times of upheaval. Mm-hmm. And the trickster energy is about change and transformation. And, and usually life seems to happen at the joints. That's where this, the, the new stuff comes in. That's right. It can be either destructive or really, really powerful, but it's always fluid. And you need someone like Saima Jamshade to help you through that. That's right. So what I was talking about, the worlds, we are creating new worlds for our clients. Uh-huh. The way the German philosopher Heidegger put it, we are not separate from our worlds. It's not us uh-huh. and the world. Uh-huh. We are co-creating the world. The world and us are kind of together. Ooh, she just quoted Heidegger. That's pretty badass. <laughs> they didn't teach me that in therapy school. And in a way, it really allows for how do you create a new world? So as a coach, that partnership that I was talking about, that you partner with them in a very thought-provoking creative meaning making way uh-huh. to help them see other possibilities to help them access other worlds that they're not able to at the development level that they're at you were talking to me at one point about descending and ascending levels the coach kind of stepping up with the person towards something or into something and that's really interesting to me can you talk about concretely what, what does that look like what does that mean suppose a client comes and they have these polarized parts they're like well a part of me wants to move to Idaho because my family's there. But a part of me really wants to live in Southern California because I love the sun and I don't want to be alone here. But But little do they know that both places suck. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That's not fair. Sorry. We're not talking about Marin. We can talk about Marin later. Okay. We will discuss that. So this person is feeling polarized. This person is feeling polarized. Uh, there's like a fight going on and there's been, there's a dilemma and nothing can really help them. You know, I've had coaches tell me, it would be like, just make a list of the pros and cons. Make a list of the pros and cons. There are therapists that do that. Can you believe oh that Oh my shit? God, it's yes. It's garbage. Make yes. A, here's a handout. Yes. Here's, I knew this damn therapist who would, I had a friend who had, in major, major PTSD. She would black out and end up in another city. She would wake up underneath the table. I mean, she was far gone. Oh, wow. And she had a therapist who would hand her these printouts with like DBT skills to self-soothe. Oh, my god. And it's, like, it's like putting a piece of paper on top of, a, of an active volcano. Well, that's the thing with self-help books as well, sometimes. I think they should all be burned. I'll write one someday just so people can burn it. <laughs>
you don't want to be the guru who wrote that book and now you're teaching that theory and those classes and workshops for millions of dollars. You're going to burn that book. I have a friend who's doing that and he is making some serious cash right now. Take that back. I shall take it back. It's redacted. (laughs) I will do it. I will write the book. I will make the money. I will will be be richer than a a Bitcoin bro. There you go. Anyway, so go on. What was I saying? You... (laughs) Before I rudely interrupted you, um, you were talking about someone is polarized between two things. There's something called IFS, which is internal family systems. Would you like to describe family systems? No, I would like you to describe it. She would like me to describe it. So family systems is looking at your family as a system. So a lot of times, you know, a patient will come in and and they'll be, let's say, uh, addicted to heroin and having panic attacks in the middle of the night when really what's happening is let's say it's a kid and the kid and let's say the parents are getting divorced and his sister is uh, bulimic everyone the family's totally dysfunctional and so what the therapist will realize is, oh this is a, this is probably a systemic family issue they're trying to fix the kid but really the, the child is expressing the sickness and the shadow aspect of the family so you look at the system of the family instead of the individual person and it's really powerful stuff. You can diagram the family out. You can look at how trauma has been passed down through the generations. It's just really, really neat. And now internal family system is? All of that. All of that. Internalized. Whoa. Okay. That's cool. Isn't it? That's so I cool. I did not come up with this. But you like it. So why I love it. You love it. So here's I this person. It. They're polarized. They don't know whether to go to one shitty place or another shitty place. And so you come along with your internal family system and say, hey, you, client, come here. I've got some stuff. And they're going to help. And how is the, what is the... <laughs> so they come to the session and they're having the same discussion about, well, I want to do this, but I want to do that. What right. if I... And we start move to move in one direction, but right. then the other part's pulling you and then there's all these other characters that are showing up as inner critics there's some kind of resistance there's fear there's fear of being afraid there's Mm -hmm. fear of being trapped or whatever it is that's going on in that constellation in ifs they're called protector parts managers internal managers a manager would look like somebody who's having a hard time focusing. So in other words, there's a part of them that's having a hard time They're, focusing. Exactly. The idea is that, that our consciousness is an aggregate of, in a way, of different people. That's right. And we're trying to get them to talk and connect and stop fucking us up so we can make a decision about which shitty place to live in. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay. All right. And all these parts and all these systems, right. they are reacting from a place that was developed when they were maybe children. I see. Right. So think about a good example. The way I've heard it is that Lord of the Flies. So those children. Yes. And you put them in an island. Yeah. And suddenly they become somebody else. Mm -hmm. But they're essentially children. Yeah. But they don't know how to survive and Mm -hmm. respond to the complexity of what's happening in their lives right now. Sure. On that island. Right. These parts are actually well-meaning. Right. (laughs) They're acting out in a way to get your attention so that I they see. can be seen and accepted I see. So, and they can be heard because they're worried right. about so you. So if you're like having, let's say you have a panic attack, you're about to go on a date and you have a panic attack, there's a part of you that is maybe childlike and is really afraid of connecting yeah. and reaching out and, and right. stepping and onto the stage. And that part may be called the exile. Right, right. Fascinating. And do you actually do a thing where they do kind of a gestalt thing where they speak to their different parts? Like yes. how do you integrate? Tell me yeah. about that. Can you walk, so, us through, walk us through a session? Do you want to try it with me? Okay, a demo? let's do it. So tell me what brings you here today, Ben. Um, uh, I'm, um, I'm, I'm having trouble dieting. I'm so hungry all the time, and I feel like my brain 
switches into this like ravenous lion mode when I'm hungry and I can't stay on point and I start eating everything in my apartment, including the curtains. Mm. Sounds like there's a part of you that is feeling hungry all the time. Although I don't think eating is the right example, but we can try. Let's try. Well, I mean, uh, I, 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 there's a craving. I have a f craving for food that's unnatural. Craving. Okay. Right. And yes. so what's that about? What so, do you suppose that comes from? Is it active right now? Yes. Well, no, because I'm engaged with you. Okay. But uh, as soon as you leave, yeah. I am going to probably go nuts and eat a lot. Or I'm going to like defrost some really boring chicken and eat it very, very quickly and get through it and get myself full before I eat like, mm. you know, six bowls of Cheerios. But if you don't mind, mm -hmm. do you think you can access that feeling right now if you were to relax and kind of get into it and see if you can be in contact with it? I don't want to, but I will. <sighs> well, yeah. Take a few deep breaths. Oh God, take deep, I hate deep breaths. They're so overrated. Um, so, <laughs> all right. Um, so I'm. I feel that part of me feels empty. Mm -hmm. I feel like empty and almost angry and panicky. Mm -hmm. Like if I don't eat something, my life is worthless. Like I like nothing else matters except for eating. Like if I can't eat something I really want to eat, then what's the point of being on this earth? You know, why should I like, I've got all these goals around like, oh, I want to look better and I want to fit in these clothes and I want to be better at jujitsu and be in better shape and live a longer life and be healthier and all these things. And when I'm hungry, none of that matters. It's just like the only thing that has meaning for me in that moment is, is food. And it's like, I'm like this part of myself has possessed me. Right. I it's like I'm 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 I need an exorcist or something to get it to like, you know, and the exorcism is is what I eat, unfortunately. Mm. It's so awful. You, yeah. It sounds terrible. Yeah. Right. But you also mentioned a few other areas there which could be other parts, mm. like the part that wants to look good in jujitsu. Yeah. The part that wants to be dating. Yeah. So there are other areas that are maybe attacking this exile well it's like it's like their voices aren't as loud yeah. when i'm hungry and I, I can't i don't listen to them yeah you know i'm, I'm sort of almost speaking from this i'm trying to like speak from that place like it's like they're like i almost literally can't have the thought of hey what about jujitsu hey what about that girl that you wanted to impress in that yeah. new suit you know it's like it's i can't hear it what if you were to how do you feel towards this part the the angry hungry part furious i want to mm. kill it it's my enemy it makes me mad it makes me, i get so angry at myself like i want to punch myself in the face you know it's like later on when after i've eaten and i'm feeling guilty and shameful and horrible about the whole thing i just want to i just want to beat myself up on a street corner somewhere i'm mm. so mad you know wow that sounds that part is very furious yeah this angry part yeah so you think that the anger the angry part is a different chunk too it's like a different person kind of it's it feels like it. What? How does it feel to you? Yeah, I've never thought about that before. This is very interesting. So, part of what's happening right now is that you're making me think about things in a new way. Yeah. I had not, I had not considered that that yeah. the anger was a different sort of. So, can we go back to the anger right now? Sure. So, what if you were to focus on the anger, just attune to it, just a little bit, and see what it has to say? Um, uh, you fucking slob. Mm. you know you're a fucking fat slob and uh you're not worth the shit and mm. you 
fuck up your body the way you do and you have no willpower and you're not a man you have no spine that's what the angry part's saying mm-hmm. yeah. i'm not good enough yeah you know and you proved it because you stuffed your face with that you know yeah. double cheese burrito it sounds like it's really mad yeah it's really really mad yeah because it's not just it's not just about it's not just about the anger at the food it's the anger that about my whole life like you're 46 you haven't you taken over the world yet like all the things that like all the failures are wrapped mm. up in that moment yeah because in my fucked up head i <laughs> so you know as a as a fat formerly fat person many of you may have noticed that i've like struggled with weight my whole life and lost 100 pounds and you know um that i've always associated thinness and fitness more importantly i should say fitness because it's not just thinness I, I get that ladies and gentlemen but i associated thinness with success and thinness with goodness thinness yeah. with being uh, a successful human yeah and so there's part of me that is not only angry at myself for not right. being that and it sort of internalized self-hatred but also hatred for the world for having having put that on me right and so the, it's those meta narratives we were talking about yeah. so there's another part telling you how the world expects you to be yeah 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 it needs you to be fit it needs you to look a certain way and only then you'll be accepted yeah into the collective and, yeah and, 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 so and, sounds like right now we're we've seen three different three different systems three different parts there's the part that's really hungry uh-huh. and at the bottom of it, it's feeling empty and then there's the part that's really really furious and angry uh-huh. at this hungriness and the way it's mm-hmm reacting to this energy right. of wanting more. Okay. And then you talked about some other part, one that expects you to look a certain way, be fit. Uh-huh. There is a call, um, there is a demand on you to right. look a certain way, fit into the culture okay. the way you're supposed to. Uh, that's a really interesting thought, and yeah. I'm not disagreeing with it. And ladies and gentlemen, this is how therapy goes. This is what, what she's doing right now is what the kind of conversations she'd have with the client. Just yeah. that's what, and I'm playing along, I think, and so I feel like the anger at myself is indelibly connected to the anger at the world. Yeah. It's almost like a, you know what a whirling dervish is? Like yes, those, the it, Sufi it, dervish. It, it's like that, it's like I'm spinning. Yeah. You know, and that anger is just like, it's angry at everything. And maybe, maybe what you're doing is separating them out so I can like deal with it, which yeah. is maybe good. This is not how our session would normally go. Right. Because I wouldn't let you go off in all these directions. What would you do? Tell me, say more about that. What would you do? We would start with a place where I would build trust okay. and some kind of intimacy with you so right. that you can relax as we start to explore some of these parts where then you would give me permission. Uh-huh. Your parts would me give me permission for us to go approach them. How would they give permission? Well, you kind of just gave me permission in different ways. And in another way, we're also analyzing how this is going because okay. you're also recording a podcast right right so you're giving context and you're narrating what's happening right now and you're also adding your own analysis here and there and so part of your job as a coach is to know when you've been given permission and to know when it's safe to step into that zone part of the training is for me to have no agenda for my client and to get them to a place where 
I am holding no judgment. Mm -hmm. I am providing them psychological safety. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I am looking at them in a way which is loving and accepting of okay. where they are in their lives so that they, in turn, uh -huh. feel seen and appreciated and non-judgmental about these scary places cool. that are volatile. There's war zones mm -hmm. happening in there right now. Right. As you focus on them, you're able to look at them in a different way. Moving the energy around. Right, you can Get, move the yeah. energy around. I, I often tell you know my patients and other professionals, the goal here is to move the energy around yeah. in ways that it has not moved before. Yeah. And if you can do that, you're right. probably going to enact change of some kind. I've just talked to you about a modality that came from the psychotherapy world, yeah. right? Just as you were talking about coaches who can do anything they want. But then there are also therapists who are stepping into the world of coaching. And there are actually psychotherapists who right. have now turned coaches. Really? Which, yes, That's so there cool. are many. Why, why, why do they do that? Probably for the exactly the same reasons as you listed about how it can be. Did you say stodgy? Did you stodgy? Yeah, yeah, kind of formulaic. Kind smile of, and nod. A fear of losing your license if you say the wrong thing. It's so restrictive. There's no freedom for creativity. Well, there is a freedom for creativity, but there's a felt sense that there isn't. Yeah, which I think is the thing that. So of. that felt sense. So you, as a therapist, if you went to a coach, right, <laughs> <laughs> we would work with that felt sense right. of feeling trapped and prohibitive and feeling stuck, right, in the space that you're in, because you can see there's so much other fun ways. Yeah fun and energizing ways where you would move that energy because you understand that energy because you've been working with it for years where you could liberate some of that okay so you, we've been talking about ifs and now we're going to talk about something different what's that it's called depth of process which is where things are more flowy moving into bodily senses of okay. where do you feel this give me an example what would it look like if a client comes to me and says, I am heartbroken, my daughter's going off to college and I'm gonna be an empty nester and I feel like I've been eating a lot, I've been emotional eating, I've, I've been binge watching Netflix, I can't take care of myself. We go back to this place of, okay, well, how do you feel about losing your daughter or you know, letting your daughter go to school? Right. And it's like, well, I feel like my heart's been pulled out. Oh. Yeah. Something that's like felt imagery. You can go into, well, can you move into that area? Where does it hurt? Where do you feel it in your body? I see. You know? okay. And sometimes they don't know. And we don't know either. Right. We're just kind of having this experiential creative process. Carl Rogers, he would do a thing where he would stay super present with the patient. He would deviate very small amounts from what the patient actually said. Yeah. He would do a ton of paraphrasing. So what you're saying is yeah. like somebody would say, well, I just get, you know, when this happened, I just get angry. So what you're saying is you get angry when that happens. Yeah. And tell me, what does that anger look like? And the guy would describe it. And the guy says, I just don't feel like I can express my anger here. Carl Rogers would say, well, you, sure you can. It wasn't even clear what the guy was angry about. See, this video, it's pretty famous the guy getting worked up <clears throat> about being able to express his anger and Carl Rogers has not added a iota of information to the session. It's pretty cool. We do tend to do that. We mirror back. We don't paraphrase what the client is feeling. Uh -huh. We say it exactly the way they say oh, it. Oh, really? Yeah. You repeat it word for word? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Some of the, You learn to intuit and pick up on what seems important. You're not repeating everything that they're saying in All the right. session. Okay. So there is a bit of that. 
And then you can go to a deeper place, which is also called depth of presence and absence. What does that look like? You know, all the parts are relaxed. This person's not thinking about having a cheeseburger. Right. You know, no cheeseburger. They've moved into this flowy state. I want a cheeseburger now. Yeah. <laughs> like a big one. Like one, you know, like you have you ever, to try. You, you have to, to try impossible meat. Fuck that. Have you ever been to In N Out Burger? Many times. Well, you know, they can, you can get like a five by five. Like those burgers will be like, like they, they'll be like a foot high. You can, I want one of those. Yeah. Impossible burger. Bah. You want one right now? I want five right now. I five. want five, five by five. Oh my goodness. At my height, I could plow through a four by four animal style fries and a milkshake in like six minutes. I was a lawnmower. Mm. <laughs> anyway, enough about me. So, you, what is the what is so this person's not thinking about a cheeseburger? Then what happens? So we've moved into an area where the coach is really, really present, where you're not limiting yourself to oh, this client has a certain goal that uh -huh. we're working towards. Right, goals have limitations. Right, you're not working towards a certain narrative that you've designed for them. I guess what I'm learning from this conversation is that I've always pictured coaches as being super goal oriented. You know, you see them in the in the movies and on TV shows where they're you know get up and go and and we're gonna go do the thing and you're gonna get you're gonna live your best life and be your best self and you're gonna go tell your father you love him and then you're gonna go to Africa and live your life and happily ever after. happily ever after and go 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 but you're really showing me a whole new side of stuff which is pretty cool I know it's very, I haven't even scratched the surface well, well Benjamin I, I think you've kind of scratched a little really? bit you've got, she's got a whole stack of cards in her hand let's talk more Benjamin so okay you can so put let, all let's the cool do let's in. do one more and then we're gonna do your life story so think about a Venn diagram Venn right? diagram okay so therapy yeah. Coaching, therapy here, the part that is not overlaying uh -huh. is the DSM, mental disorders. Right. Right. Diagnosing, treating. Right. The part that therapists won't be able to help with would be like, oh, how do I learn how to swim? I did want to talk about uh, having a change agenda. Okay. What is that? Remember when we were working on your parts? Yeah. Right. When parts have a, a change agenda for the other parts or for themselves. That's a paradox. You probably know this from Gestalt. It's a paradox of the theory of change is that the harder you push to bring about change, the more resistance you meet. Okay. So this way of coaching, which is you're kind of working with what is unfolding right now for right. the client and right. you are present to that whatever that might be okay. whether there's fear resistance or whatever they're considering as unwanted uh -huh. to help them accept that and be in a place where that thing right. that is struggling is actually able to loosen up and tell its story so you're talking about that anger at the world right that's where it took us but we had to stay longer with that okay that's called letting be. Letting yeah. be. Letting be. It's basically you're saying you accept the fact that there can't be change while working towards changing. Yeah, you accept the fact that you don't know and that you're working towards finding out what this has to say, what messages are bringing. Okay. So I have a part where I get distracted a lot. I want to run to the next shiny thing because it's fun. I've been looking into the Jungian typology stuff and the Myers-Briggs, like one of the mistakes I think that Myers-Briggs makes is that they focus too much on the strengths yeah. and not enough on the weaknesses because the weaknesses are the opposite of where your strengths are. So if you are a intuitive type, mm -hmm. your opposite, your least developed function is your sens sensation. And if you are a thinking type, usually your least developed 
part is your feeling. So if you're extroverted thinking, let's say you're extroverted thinking, your introverted feeling would be your weakest function. And so if someone is an extroverted intuitive type or an introverted intuitive type, sometimes their extroverted sensation can be really, really weak. I was reading this book where von Franz was describing somebody who had a really undeveloped extroverted sensation function and the guy couldn't stop eating because he was so out of touch with what how to manage his physical environment that he hadn't that he just couldn't deal he just had no consciousness there how would you treat that i think your approach is awesome talking to it talking about it talking about the theory of it you know noticing when the patient engages their sensation function in a way they don't normally to to, to call attention like oh you look you you noticed like i remember once i was in my therapist's office and i noticed that there was pictures on the wall and i'm like why am i suddenly noticing these he said because your sensation function is kicking in a little bit mm is I never notice the things, right? I don't notice right. things. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pure thinking type. I don't notice stuff. And that's a way of dialoguing. You, you get the person to notice right. that part of themselves yeah. and not to be afraid of it, like you were saying, and let it step out into the light. It's a slow process. Yeah. And there's also this idea in Jungian theory that your least developed parts, I mean, they, they say personality aspects, which I like yours a little bit better. When those things switch on, it's a time of great upheaval in the person's life because it's like suddenly it's like you take the blinders off. For instance, as an extroverted, as an introverted thinking type, my weakest function, I'm pretty sure, is extroverted feeling. That means making connections with people. Yeah. And if I was suddenly able just to walk around the street and greeting people and talking to anybody and be completely loose, my life would change in an afternoon. I mean, think about that. I would just be, I wouldn't be me. I'd be a new, totally new version of myself. Mm. It would be incredible. I think you are that person. That's nice of you. Here we go. <laughs> she's, she's taking me into her modality. You think so? You think I'm that person? Maybe. There are parts of you that have acted that way, and I've seen you do that. So, yeah. yes. Oh, thank you. That, that's nice to hear. It's all in there. It's all in there. That's yeah. good to know. Listen, let's do um, your journey. My life story. Your journey. Oh. Uh, so, Saima, my understanding is that you were a kind of a tech, a tech sister, a tech bro, I guess. Can you say tech sister? I can't believe you just called me a tech sister. <laughs> <laughs> I just made I've that up. I've never heard that. I made it up. I love it. If there can be tech bros, it's there should the be tech thing. sisters. Hashtag tech sister. Hack to hashtag tech sister. You heard it here first, folks. Hashtag tech sister. And what were you? What You were how old? What industry were you in? Okay, I was maybe 25 when I there was a tech boom and I was an economics, business economics major. I and started you my first job on wall street in a financial institution but in technology and i stayed in it because it pays lots of money yes money's nice and you were running around drinking lots of caffeine just having a blast and then you started to burn out yeah i lived in different cities i worked at different startups big companies yeah. small companies yeah, all yeah. sorts of things and i finally ended up here in the bay area about seven eight years ago okay i was on my way to becoming an agile coach agile is a process so i was kind of already working with this i was already working with teams making teams more collaborative creating values creating inner connections between the teams and making them self-correcting self-generating sort of like a um a project manager on steroids sort of with a little bit of psych in it yes and so you kind of went from tech sister to to, to tech coach to tech to agile to, coach to, to agile tech coach but what I was finding was that there was a lot of dissatisfaction in tech. There was a lot of burnout. Frankly, I was just kind of over it. I needed something else. I needed something deeper. I needed something that was more of vocation type okay. calling. I wanted to help people. 
And so off you went, and now we're going to talk about what happened. Rumor on the street is that you are planning big things, big things. Huge. So for those of you at home, Saima is not Caucasian. She is a beautiful brown lady. And <laughs> and she's from Pakistan. Yes. And she- You uh, said that right. You what? didn't say Pakistan. Pakistan. <laughs> she's from Pakistan. Pakistan. You are going to go back there and do what? You have some weird ideas that, that mystify me. I am going to become a full-time coach. Why did you think that that was mystifying? Well, it's mystifying because, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a, an ignorant American. So when I think of Pakistan, Pakistan, I don't think of coaches. I just think of like, you know, desert, camels, camels deserts, <laughs> and, and <laughs> like, you know, people sitting on carpets and... And eating, um, eating, uh, eating. Oh my uh, God! Dolmas. Stop it, Ben! I will not let you put that. It you will sound horrible. That it's just horrible. Well, I'm it's I'm making fun of myself. I don't actually think those things. Uh, what I'm saying is that I don't I don't know why, but the idea of coaching happening in a place like Pakistan is is really interesting to me, and that's what's mystifying about it. So, what are you going to build there? I'm going to build a coaching business. It's going to offer leadership workshops to girls and women uh -huh. and whoever else wants to join. It's going to be great. You have an actual physical place to do that? I have an office. My dad gave me access to a building he owns. A whole building. <laughs> That's awesome. Only in Pakistan. Hey, I've got a whole building for you to set up whatever you want in it in Pakistan where you have well, a, that that's that's my parents way of helping me come back home helping you big fat air quotes <laughs> get your ass back here <laughs> enough enough look at the state this country is in do you yeah. really want to live there they don't even like you do, there do look with, at the way they treat do with their accent. own people what do you think the needs are over there is therapy respected over there Yes. Because like in places like Russia, for instance, like yeah. therapy is looked down upon. It's like if you don't go to a therapist unless you're re there's something really wrong with you. It's total, There's a lot of stigma, but not so much in Pakistan? Not anymore. Mm. I think it used to be like that, but there's more and more psychotherapists. There's more and more counselors. Okay. There's recovery there. Okay. There's recovery from addiction. Okay. Um, so it's really growing. So um, NA and AA have made their the way there. The whole thing. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. it's a frontier. It really is. And there aren't a lot of coaches there. I haven't heard of a lot. Right. I met with some therapists when I went back home this time to Karachi, which is the city where I'm from. And so what's the difference between a therapist and a coach in Pakistan? To them, it's almost the same. But then again, it would be the same differences. Mental disorders, right. diagnosing with mental, treating mental diseases. And your goal is to create a basically an institute, it sounds like. My goal is to bring more people from the U.S., especially now with COVID. There's uh -huh. a sudden channel, and it's a huge channel of online learning, online workshops. You can take anything anywhere. Right. And all these people, all these masters, people like you, they have suddenly become accessible to other parts of the world if somebody was to bring them in. What I plan to do is not do it alone by myself and be the only coach. I want to have different collaborative partners that I can bring back this wisdom and this knowledge and this know-how and mix the two because there's a lot over there that can be applied to a different type of coaching. I know there is a field called Islamic counseling. My friend Whoa. was just telling me about it. Um, she's a counselor here in New Jersey. Okay. She's a therapist. 
She's an MFT, okay. but she works with these certain organizations. And I'm sure they have them in other religious communities as well, or other cultural communities mm-hmm. where they are applying more of that language uh-huh. and philosophy uh-huh. coming from Sufism or okay. mysticism okay. and weaving it, that into coaching. So you are right about having the freedom in coaching to bring in all sorts of knowledge areas, all sorts of modalities. Right. It would be foolish for coaches to not take into account how psychotherapists understand human beings or how biology understands it, how anthropology understands human beings, sociology, economics, spirituality. So in the end, we're in the business of human beings. We're in the business of working with other human beings, being another human being to another human being. So it's all about connection. And yeah, end. yeah, which is really what we were kind of saying in the beginning. Yes. I like that, human beings being with other human beings. At the end of the day, that's what we're doing. Exactly. Basically. It's almost like at some point that the nomenclature becomes just ridiculous. Like you don't need, yeah. doesn't really matter. Uh, historically, psychologists and therapists have been accused of just using pathology and pathologizing yeah. the human being. It's true. And then they put them in that box because yeah. then that's the only lens that they're looking at them through. And they're true. missing all this richness and all these other aspects of being a human yeah. that does need to be seen, that yeah. does need to be acknowledged. Yeah. So in a way, you're putting them in a cage. Mm-hmm. Well, Carl Jung said that he was no longer interested in removing individual neurotic behaviors and neuroses from his patients, but he was really just interested in growth. Because as you grow and as you become more of yourself, all those neuroses naturally just slough off. Yeah. And that's really what we're, what this is all about is growth. We're talking about integration. And, you know, like I tell my clients in recovery, I say, look, addiction is not cured. It's outgrown. I think there's too much emphasis on curing in the West. And fixing. Fixing, yeah. Curing. Gross. Yeah, it doesn't work. Well, listen, I think that does it. I think that's a good place to land. Uh, I really appreciate your time and coming on here. I uh, hope... You know what this is? Saima is doing a thing with her hand and her face that she's it's it looks it like means, it means salam salam it means adab <laughs> it's it's very it's very it's how I would imagine that a Pakistani would say would end a thing you like think. like yeah like like there's no red carpet there's no carpet on the ground there's no dolmas but she's doing this salam thing and it, it works I like it you know it, it fits my story we'll end on that now <laughs> all right thank you so much you're thank awesome thank you so much this all is right. so fun all right bye Thank you for listening. Pertinent information stemming from this episode will be available in the program notes. Should you have any questions or wish to be a guest on my show, you may contact me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or go to my website at benjaminrusick.com. In addition, I really, 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 super really encourage you to subscribe, share, and all the rest. Thanks again. And remember, should you ever find that your plate is full, well, consider getting a bigger plate.